It's good to see you. It is good to see you. About a month ago, my wife and I were getting ready for a date. It's been a little while since we've been out. We were going to go to uh, Firebirds, Firestone, Fire, something on fire, Firebirds. We were heading to Nomah. We were getting all dolled up and I was ready to go. I had my slacks on and a button-down shirt all tucked in and nice shoes. And I'm standing there. Stacy's in our, in our bathroom getting ready to go. And as she's getting ready to go, our kids are kind of nitpicking at each other. And there's some tension starting to build. Now, this probably has never happened to you where you let your children's mood influence your attitude. But it happens to us periodically or all the time. So as my children's tension is beginning to grow, there's some tension growing between Stacy and I. The kids are kind of in the room and they're just... like It's just constant Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. Stacy looks at me and I'm standing in our bedroom in the middle of our room. And she looks at me and she says, sometimes I just want to, I just want to, and she does this toward me. And I said, you want to hit me? She said, she just, she just, she looks at me. I'm standing there. I'm dressed up, ready to go. I got my keys in my, I'm just waiting to go. She says, sometimes you just, I just want to, and she starts running at me and she jumps at me like this. And she goes, brr. And as I have my arms out like this, I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, what are you doing? She jumps in the air, very non Matrix like. She lands with her foot on my foot. She rolls her ankle and proceeds to fall on the floor, writhing in pain for more than 10 minutes, screaming at me. You figure that one out, guys. She's, yeah, she said that. She said, I said, what are you doing? She said, I thought you were going to catch me. I said, I didn't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're in the bathroom going, blah, 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 and all of a sudden the kids are like, blah, blah, and you're just coming at me. And she's on the floor, and I said, well, here, let me, I'm trying to be chivalrous. I'm like, here, let me help you. Don't touch me. <laughs> and I said, you're right. Our hardwood floors are much more comfortable than being in pain than in our bed. And I said, you want me to get you some ice? Don't talk to me. Oh, what, what can I do? You should have caught me. Because I didn't know what you're doing. So after 10 minutes of this, she musters her strength and she gets up off the floor and into bed and she puts her leg up and it swells immediately. And I said, so does this mean we're not going to dinner? <laughs> I was taking her out. I wanted to honor her wishes. I was just thinking very practically. I went through this whole thing and a couple of weeks go by and it's not getting better. She's tried an air cast. She's tried an ace bandage. Almost a month goes by and I said, Stacy, go to the doctor. No, they're just going to, no, go to the doctor. So finally I convinced her to go to the doctor on what she just feels was, she's just embarrassed that she rolled her ankle trying to playfully attack me. She goes to the doctor, and our doctor says, yeah, you need to get that looked at. Schedules uh, an MRI. And she gets back from the MRI a week later, and it reads like a medical journal. She had a high ankle sprain. She had a bone contusion. She chipped a part of her bone. She had a, a, some type of a, I don't know, it's a medical journal. I don't speak that language. But she broke something in there. Like, all this crazy stuff happened. And I said, 
That's what you get for attempting to playfully attack me. <laughs> I looked at her and said, what are you doing? Did you not consider the consequences of your actions? Like, were you just not thinking, I don't understand what was going through your mind. And she said, well, I was just trying to de-escalate the tension in the air from the children. So I thought I would playfully attack you. I said, so you let our kids' attitude influence your choice. And so it's our children's fault that your foot's broken, not mine. (laughs) That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Because the Apostle Paul is in this interesting relationship with these followers of Jesus who are very new to their faith. And they're allowing Judaizers, these Jewish religious individuals, to influence their freedom that they have found in their faith. You see, they've, they've adopted this this understanding in a right relationship with Jesus that there's nothing that I can do to be good enough, but God is enough, and through Jesus, I can experience freedom. There's this message of salvation that's built on grace as the framework from which everything else will be established. Then Christ is the cornerstone. There's these Judaizers who, this hasn't been their practice, this hasn't been their experience, and so they're maliciously and intentionally influencing these new followers of Jesus, these Gentiles or non-Jews, causing them to question what they're doing. And so they're actually forfeiting the freedom that they have in their faith and they're moving back into religious rules and regulations. And Paul hears about this, and we've been talking about this now for several weeks, but today is going to be kind of a culmination, a culmination of his intrinsic plea, his, his deep desire for them to get it, Paul's going to essentially ask, what are you doing? What were you thinking? Why would you ever do that? You're not really thinking all the way through the ramifications of your, your choice. And so today we're going to look at, we're going to look at the question, what are you doing? And I hope that by the time we're done today, we can answer together not only what we're doing, but what it looks like to be in Christ. Would you grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4? We're going to be in verses 21 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, I would love to invite you to raise your hand and allow one of our ushers to gift you a Bible that's yours. You can have it and keep it. If you're looking for Galatians, go to the table of contents. It should give you a page number in your Bible. Most Bibles do. Or you can start a little more than halfway through in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then you'll have Acts or Acts of the Apostles. You'll have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. If you hit Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or anything thereafter, you've gone too far. Hang a left and head back toward Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians 4. 21 through 31. Let's open in a word of prayer and invite the Holy Spirit to use this time for his glory. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together in your name and to celebrate your name. Thank you for your word. And I pray that as your word goes out, that it won't return void. I pray that each one of us would be freed in this moment from distractions and that we would each be be pliable in our heads and our hearts, that we would be open to receiving from from you what you want for us. God, I pray that you would use me as conduit today to speak your truth with love and with authenticity and with integrity and accuracy. God, I pray that all that is said and done would be used for your glory. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift holy and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, 
If you're ready to get after it this morning, say amen. In Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, the Apostle Paul is going to ask the question, what were you thinking? Verse 21, the Apostle Paul to this group of Gentiles who are now giving way to the Judaizers, he says, tell me, tell me, you who want to live under the law, you who want to intentionally practice and be bound by the things that the law produces, you who want to live under the law, do you know Do you know what the law actually says? Do you realize what you're doing? Because to break one law is to break them all. And do you understand what the law is referring to? Now, different theologians have different doctrinal uh, positions on this and and theological positions on, on what Paul is referring to, it could be that he's referring to the original law where you see Moses up on the the side of Mount Sinai and he is interceding on behalf, he's acting as a mediator between God and the the Israelites. And still others would argue that he's actually referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These rules and these regulations, these religious ceremonies that encapsulate the structure, the infrastructure that a relationship was built upon between the Israelites and, and God. And these, these rules were never intended to save us. They were always designed to inform us of our need for a Savior. But these Gentiles, they're allowing these Judaizers to influence them and saying, look, you can do it. You can say it. You can be it. You can have it. You've just got to do X, Y, and Z. Systematically, here's the approach. Here's the things that that you need to be about. And we're going to learn here in just a moment that there are some serious consequences that come from this kind of construct that you build your life upon. So the Apostle Paul, if you remember last week we talked about that he, he covered the gamut of emotions, that it was an emotional array of, of information that he was sharing, please, with his people. This is no different. This is an emotional question. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're asking for, what you're about to get into? And in verse 22, he's going to bring now an allegorical expression to teach. This was very commonplace for this culture in this context. Paul was a very gifted orator. But he was also very trained as a rabbi. He would be trained in the the ways of communicating with allegory to to make a point. Now, most of the time, allegories would be, you know, fantasy. Where they they bring out this big brushstroke and paint these elaborate pictures to pinpoint something specific that they want you to draw from. But here, Paul is going to make his arguments allegorically but using scripture alone. He says in verse 22, in regard to the law, he says, the scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife, we'll soon learn that her name is Hagar, and one from his freeborn wife, which we know as Sarah. The son of the slave wife, Ishmael, was born in a human attempt And I would really encourage you to circle or somehow call attention in your Bible to the understanding that there is a human attempt going on. That the son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about 
the fulfillment of a supernatural promise, God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment, speaking of Isaac, of his promise. Church, this speaks to something that I think we struggle with all too often, and that is the difference between God's promise and our personal preference. How often are we minimizing and maybe even altogether missing out on the promise or the promises of God because we will superimpose our personal preferences? In Genesis chapter 15, we see God's promise to Abraham and Sarah to give them a descendant and to make these older individuals, this older couple who has been barren to, to become pregnant with child. And there's a, it's actually one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. There's a moment where Sarah thinks it's a comedy show and she laughs and angels come and they have this, this, this harsh conversation. And in the middle of all that's going on and Sarah wanting to, to please Abraham and to ensure that the promise would come to fruition, she responds out of personal preference and in haste and she tells Abraham to take her slave, her servant Hagar, as his own to, to bear a child with her. Now Ishmael is born and he is the older of the two and Sarah, not thinking all the way through her actions, will end up despising this child and become threatened and afraid of Ishmael taking away from God's promise and the inheritance that is to be Isaac's. But in the moment, she didn't know that Isaac would be a thing because she was more concerned about her personal preferences than God's promise. And I wonder, church, I just wonder this morning, how much are we missing out on the promises of God because we're more concerned about our personal preferences. God will make these supernatural promises. But because they're supernatural, we will default to the carnal, to the human efforts that we can give to it. We may not be all too familiar with what God can do outside of his promises, but we're very well versed with what we have done. And so rather than relying on God, we would rather... We'd rather use our own gumption, our own energy, our own efforts, and our own resources to try to make the most of the situation. And Paul is looking at these people knowing he's got hindsight. He's flying at a 30,000 foot elevation and he sees the bigger picture. He's an individual who had operated based on personal preferences and all that he had done as a, as a Jewish leader, as a Pharisee of Pharisees. One who is charged with the task and the responsibility of keeping all these commands and all these laws and ensuring that everyone around him did the same thing. But in Acts chapter 9, when you read about Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus, he has this radical encounter with Jesus that changes his life forever, which, and by the way, is why we exist as a church, to be a community where people can encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. We're not here to give you a set of rules and regulations and religiosity because religiosity and rules and regulations have never saved anybody. They establish the understanding that we need a savior. 
Saul of Tarsus is on his way to kill and to arrest and to disband all followers of the way. And on the way, he encounters Jesus. His life is changed forever. He's brought into straight street there. Ananias will come and he'll say, Brother Saul, God has got a plan for your life. He's got a promise for your life. But in order for Saul to experience the fullness of God's promise, he has to forfeit his personal preference. And sometimes when you forfeit your personal preferences, it can have an impact on your reputation, on your finances, how you spend money, how you save money, how you give money away. It can have an impact on your, your workplace, the ethics by with which you operate, your spheres of influence, what you do in your free time, the language you use, the movies you watch, the music you listen to. It's all encompassing. It costs everything, but you gain eternity. What promise of God are you missing out on this morning because you've been so consumed with your personal preference? Paul says, what were you thinking? What are you doing? And he uses this allegorical expression to paint this beautiful word picture that everyone in the audience would understand and identify with. In verse 24 and 25, he's going to go on and give a little bit more detail. And then he's going to ascribe specific meaning to it. Verse 24. These two women, Hagar and Sarah, they serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Old Testament, New Testament. Sacrifice, ultimate sacrifice. Blood sacrifices, final atonement. The first woman, Hagar, she represents Mount Sinai. Where people receive the law. And what does the law do? It creates bondage. It enslaves us. And it did for them as well. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia. Because she and her children live in slavery to the law. Now he's going to draw even further on this allegorical expression by placing geography into the equation. What he's suggesting is that regardless of your position in life, your power, your finances, your family lineage, your heritage, you were either one of two things at this time under Rome. You were either a slave or a servant. But you were in bondage to Rome. Now, the people... Wanted to make sure that even in slavery, they were recognized for their positions. And so if you've ever watched movies like Gladiator, they will introduce themselves by who they are, their family or their tribe, their clan that they come from, and their position, their rank. Think of it in modern day terms as a business card. You can be a part of an organization, but on your business card you have your credentials that put out there what you've accomplished or what you've achieved. But you still work for the organization. You still work for the man. And even when you think you escaped the man, you still got Uncle Sam. Paul is saying to these people, you Gentiles and you Jews, you Judaizers, you, you, you don't understand. You're all... You're all captive to Rome. You're all under Rome's rule and their reign. And yet you're, you've got this infighting that's taking place trying to establish 
this precedent that is, is damaging. In verse 25, now Jerusalem is, is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. What he's saying is a direct parallel to anyone who would choose to live under the law, that you're choosing to become a slave. You're choosing to become a slave to the law. You're choosing to become in, in, in bondage, handcuffed, held back by. And in verse 26, there's going to be this righteous comparison between Sarah and Hagar. But the other woman, Sarah, Sarah represents the heavenly Jerusalem. What's the heavenly Jerusalem? It's what the people believed was God's initial institution that was complete, entire, the promised people, the promised heaven. But the other one, Sarah, represents the the heavenly Jerusalem. She is a free woman, and she is our mother. Now he's going to speak about some attributes. So I want to just do a comparison, compare and contrast here. Some differences between Sarah and Hagar. It's going to come up on the screen. You can follow along here. In Genesis 15, we see the introduction of the promise from God to Sarah and Abraham. And in Genesis 16, we see Sarah choosing personal preferences over God's promise by giving Hagar over to Abraham. And then you'll go on in Exodus 19 and 21 specifically to learn more about Sarah and the promise and Isaac and Hagar in Exodus this is 19 through 24. Sarah represents freedom, while Hagar represents bondage. These are, these are attributes, these are characteristics of these two mothers. Sarah represents promise, while Hagar represents personal preference, which we've already talked about. Sarah represents grace, and we understand grace to be God's riches at Christ's expense. And while Sarah represents grace, Hagar represents work, uh, law, law. Sarah represents faith. Hagar represents works, what we do on our own. Sarah represents obedience in the end, and Hagar, the byproduct of disobedience. Sarah represents a picture of joy, while Hagar, sorrow. Sarah, the new covenant, while Hagar represents the old covenant. These are a compare and contrast. These are characteristics that you can see in, 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 in these individuals. These are the attributes that you can see in the individuals. You see, when Stacy made her decision to come charging out of the bathroom and leaping at me playfully, pretending to, to want to hit me and, and trying to de-escalate the, the growing tension of our children, you could, see, you could see the attributes of that decision when she landed on my foot and rolled her ankle. You could see the swelling. You could see the color. You could even see the pitted edema at the end of the day Anytime she would stand on her leg for any amount of time, she could push with her thumb and it would leave a pit in her ankle. You could feel the pain as she, I couldn't, she could feel the pain as she walked. I heard plenty about it, so I kind of felt like I felt it with her. There were attributes and characteristics of her choice. My friends, I want you to understand clearly that where it comes to the law or freedom in Christ, there are attributes and characteristics of how we're living our lives. And I told you last week, and I want to restate one of the most critical statements that I will ever say. The first thing that goes out the door where legalism abounds is love. If you want to know whether you are a, a child of Sarah, the promised The freedom, the grace, the love, the joy, or a child of Hagar, 
an act of disobedience, of personal preference, of bondage, of the law, of works. If you want to know how you live your life, simply evaluate your attributes. Look at the characteristics by with which you operate. And it will say an awful lot about what you believe and the one that you believe in. Paul is concerned for his friends in the faith. He's concerned that they're going to take on the characteristics and the attributes of Hagar and all that that represents. So he's going to call out Isaiah 54, specifically Isaiah 54.1. This is another teaching technique where the Apostle Paul is going to refer to a passage of Scripture that they know and they know well, and he's using this to play to their knowledge, but also to say, hey, look, don't take my word for it. The scriptures say, the ultimate authority says, the inerrant, perfect, free from flaw word of God, entirely incomplete. The scriptures say in Isaiah 54, 1, rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. This is in reference to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54, which is God's promise to the Israelites after the exile that they will experience new life. This is a promise. This is a promise that the people have been holding on to because they've been in bondage and slavery for centuries. And he says, you know this promise of God. It's been foretold. Rejoice, you who have been barren, who have not experienced new life. It's coming. This is the promise. This is the promise. And with this promise, you will experience these characteristics and these attributes of this life. In verse 28, he's going to speak to their relationship again. And you, dear brothers and sisters, again, last week we finished with the understanding that he moves from brother and sister and into his children. And we talked about the relationship there and what he was trying to accomplish. But now, I just want to establish again that when he says brothers and sisters, he is saying in kind, I am one of you. I'm with you. We're in this together. In Christ, we are we are brothers and sisters and we are heirs of the throne and co-heirs with Christ and so you're not alone. And, and I'm not just ranting, I'm somebody who's experienced this firsthand and I'm with you in this. How many of you, it's just refreshing to know periodically that others are in it with you. How many of you know that we're not called to life and ministry alone? It's a very lonely thing and I talked about that last week. I said, you know, one of the greatest tools that the enemy, that the enemy will try to use in our lives is he will try to create isolation, which leads to, you know, he'll create separation, which leads to isolation, which ultimately will lead to division and cause devastation. If you feel like you're alone, most people are not extroverted enough, even you extreme extroverts, to go out and just be friends with everybody. And if you feel like you're being left out, you'll create that separation and that will lead to isolation where you're closed off. And if the enemy can get you closed off, it will create division. And if division is allowed to happen, it will lead to devastation. Make no mistake about it. The enemy works this way in marriages. The enemy works this way in employment. The enemy works this way in friendships. The enemy works this way in families. The enemy 
even works this way in the local church. Remember I said that last week. That the enemy will actually use good intentions to rob us of God's expectations. Did you hear that? That God will use good intentions to rob us of, that the enemy will use good intentions to rob us of God's expectations. Why? Because we lose sight of God's promise in place of our personal preferences. And when we don't get our personal preferences, we begin to separate ourselves from others who are not like-minded. And it leads to isolation and division and devastation. And so the Apostle Paul says, hey guys, you're not alone. We're in this together. You're my brother. You're my sister. If you don't have somebody that you can lean into, not just lean on. There's a difference. Well, I think it's late 70s, early 80s, that song, Lean On Me. That's, that's okay. But it's missing some things. Leaning on somebody, to me, represents that when you're tired, they'll give you a shoulder for a little while and, and walk with you. Leaning into somebody is when they're carrying you. They're helping you carry your load. They're helping you carry your burden. If you don't have somebody that you're leaning into, that's your brother or sister in Christ, you're missing one of the greatest promises that God gives his people. The Apostle Paul says that I, I officiated a wedding yesterday and, and, I, and I, I love sharing this passage of scripture because it's so true. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.12, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. We need each other. We're better together. We're just flat out better together. I was reminded of this even five minutes before coming into the worship center because one of my elders, who's also one of my really good friends, who's also one of my accountability partners, stepped into my office and he sat down and he said, how are you doing? And I 